Good evening. My name is Thomas Steininger. I welcome you to Radio Evolve, our international webcast for consciousness and culture. And I am very happy to have here in the radio program Diane Mushu Hamilton. Diane, you are here uh, online? Yes, I am. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you very well. Yeah, great. Thank you for joining us. If I just uh, may uh, introduce you, uh, Diane Mushu Hamilton works globally as a mediator and is a teacher of integral spirituality and Zen. In Utah, in the USA, she established mediation programs throughout the court system. She's co-founder of Integral Facilitator, an international training program for facilitative leadership. And she is also author of the book, Everything is Workable, a Zen Approach to Conflict Resolution. Diane, we uh, invited you to talk about the relationship uh, between inner evolution and uh, what you called a social revolution. May I start our conversation? What is this connection that you are so interested in, in your work as a mediator, as a Zen teacher, as a teacher for facilitation? That uh, is this connection point between how we develop as human beings and how we show up in a world that needs change, that also needs social change. These two spheres are related and your integral approach is very much an approach how to connect these two spheres. Can you tell us a little bit, what are you doing and what motivates you to do that? Thank you so much for the question, Tom, and thanks for having me. I, I feel very grateful to be engaged over the internet with you today and just to have the ability to connect directly and, uh, with uh, friends and colleagues in Germany and around the world on the on the podcast, so that you know I can we can get past a little bit of our president's rhetoric and just establish our connection. So it's a, it's a great uh, pleasure for me to be here. Thank you. So in relationship to your question, uh, what is it that I'm trying to do with my work? I'm both a mediator and a meditator, and mediation and meditation obviously have the same root word. And basically are, are both about bringing harmony to our experience. In meditation, we sit on the cushion and we harmonize body, breath, mind, and our environment. And in mediation, you bring together disputing parties, sometimes two, three, could be multi-stakeholders, and try to address sort of fundamental commonalities, underlying wants and needs, and through that process, be able to um, bring parties together. And I, I've, I always like to laugh that I'm a talented uh, mediator without a whole lot of training, and I'm a very well-trained meditator mm-hmm. without a whole lot of talent. <laughs> so I do my best. All right. Um, in, 19, in 2004, I, I met Ken Wilber, and Ken Wilber, for your, those of you in the audience who have read his work, he gives language to certain dimensions of my experience, in, particularly both in meditation, but maybe more specifically in the realm of mediation and facilitation, where he started to help me understand a little bit more what it is that I did naturally. So I worked for Ken's Integral Institute for uh, about over 10 years. And, and then five years ago, I established the Integral Facilitator Program with Rebecca Colwell, 
where we have taken some of the language of integral theory and applied it to our integral work. And one of our operating assumptions is that inner development and, and social evolution are, are highly linked to one another. And to the extent that we can become conscious of the ways in which we're trying to grow and change, both individually and as a group, we can affect change more um, fundamentally, you might say, in the outer world. So that, so I'm trying to create those linkages. And it comes really from my own work and training and then also from the insights that I gleaned from integral theory and from working with Ken Wilber. So let's talk about the outer world. Um, our audience is also very interested in uh, what we call sometimes sacred activism, the mm -hmm. of inner development and social engagement. Yes. And you were mentioning these two parts of your work, which you called meditation and mediation. Mm -hmm. And if we uh, open our focus to the world around us, the social uh, challenges that we are confronted here in Europe, you in the US, worldwide, we don't have to name it. All of us know the issues. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you, why do you think is both meditation and mediation important to address the issues of our world? Well, in the work that I do as a mediator, so my job lots of times is to help people to understand each other. And in And what I mean by that is that we, I have to work to bring people's interiors forward so that in the exterior wor world, in the, in the settings where we're doing problem solving or we're doing planning or um, we're making political decisions, there's a lot of misunderstanding that transpires between people. So this process of bringing what's inside outside and then working with it is, is central to what it is I do. And what I've learned myself is that I, if I don't understand myself, if I can't identify the kinds of thoughts, for instance, that are, are shaping my meaning making, if I have emotional states that arise that are unfamiliar and that cause me to panic on the inside, um, I'm not going to be able to work with the emotional states that rise in the room. So it requires tremendous intimacy with oneself and a real uh, belief in our capacity to develop on the interior. And as we develop on the inside in terms of our thoughts, our feeling states, our creativity, our openness, the ways we create boundaries or we resist, if I become very intimate and familiar with myself, I'm much more able to work with the people um, in the room. So one of the things that I teach people is that if you're afraid of your own anger, when anger arises, you won't know how to work with it. You know, if you haven't touched your own sense of hopelessness when you're working with people that feel powerless or hopeless, it's going to become difficult to work with mm -hmm. that. So I see a very tremendous correlation between what we call our inner work and our social work. One reason why I really wanted to invite you is uh, my understanding of at least a part of what I see is really kind of heating up the social uh, conflicts of our time right now. Uh, what I mean is what, what I would call a degradation of the social conversation. Yes, I absolutely agree with you about that. And we can discuss what it is. Maybe it's the dynamics of uh, uh, social, uh, the social internet, uh, Facebook. Uh, uh, but there's something that is a complete degradation of the discourse where we kind of uh, deny each other uh, just to... Uh, to to agree our humanity, 
uh, to it to each other. And I think um, at least one part that the integral interested people can bring here to the table is a deep understanding that whatever conflict we have, and we can uh, disagree with a lot of things, and it's important to disagree and and, and see really uh, social issues where you, uh, you you don't solve them with just being nice to each other. It's not about agreeing just being nice to each other response, but there's something where we have to change how we relate, how we relate to the other, and I mean particularly the other we disagree with. Mm-hmm. And I find that your work, and mm-hmm. I mean both your Zen meditation approach and also what you do with mediation addresses this issue, but it's maybe a social skill that we have to learn more than uh, ever before. I completely agree with you. In fact, uh, in the United States right now, I'm appalled at the quality of the discourse and how extreme it is and the inability of people who are my friends and even myself in moments to really be able to take into account what's happening in my own nervous system in terms of fight or flight, feeling threatened, um, being willing to be hostile towards the politics of the other side. And I think there are a number of things that contribute to this. So one is that um, there's a tendency when, when politics or when public discourse becomes more polarized, it's, it's really quite difficult to hold the truth of the other perspective. So, for instance, in the United States right now, for many people on the left or who are more liberal in their politics, the, 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 let's just take the immigration debate, for instance, right mm-hmm. now. It, the immigration debate it so closely registers as racism and as xenophobia that to accord it any truth at all feels like a complete capitulation to something fundamentally intolerable. So we've gotten so polarized that it's very difficult to, you, you could flip it for a moment. And I could say that within the, let's say, gender politics, for instance, and the uh, transgendered issues that are arising, sometimes mm-hmm. for people who are in more conservative camps or um, further to the right, you know, to, to deny the reality of gender seems absurd, just completely absurd, because some people will say gender doesn't exist at all, and that's just such a complete affront to their direct experience and so threatening to their way of being that they just simply can't give that truth up. So so the polarization really contributes to it because it, it hits a, an extreme where it's very difficult to accord truth to the other side at all. So then you start getting much more reactionary responses. I think another thing that happens is that there's a subtle way in which we have to be careful because emotionality and conflict, because it is fundamentally more exciting to the nervous system, Mm -hmm. gets our attention much more readily than a calm conversation in which we're exchanging perspectives and points of view. And, and so there's a way that the drama of the polarity excites us and captures our attention. And I think one of the challenges we have in terms of restoring discourse, and you, you got at this just a minute ago, Tom, as you said, you know, we can have conversations that aren't simply about being nice to each other, that are substantive, that are energizing, that are both empathizing and challenging and that have good results. But those conversations need to be real and exciting. And sometimes that takes a skill set that we don't have. So we tend to get kind of drawn to the emotionality and the polarity simply because it's so exciting to the system. And I will say that in my own 
perspective, I find that social media and the way that, that we do television now, at least in the United States, where many of our news channels are very, are politically driven and they represent one perspective. When I was young and you tuned into the news, you got something closer to a third person perspective on the mm -hmm. news. Now you get very subjective perspectives that are highly politicized, that are funded by particular, um, you know, interests that, that have strong political views. So it's hard to get a third person perspective. And that would be the third thing that I would add. So we, we have these extreme polarities where we can't accord truth to others. We're driven by the excitement and the emotionality. And we also are, are bound by uh, tremendously subjective points of view and that we, we don't quite know how to allow personal opinion politically driven discourse and empiricism to kind of land together. What's the empiric point of view? So Ken's written his book called Trump and the Post-Truth World. And in a certain way, postmodernism has contributed to us, contributed to us not knowing what exactly constitutes truth. So there's some, there's some complex factors that are contributing to the degradation of the discourse right now, mm. in my view. I hope that was worthwhile to your listeners. No, uh, absolutely so. But let, let me ask, let me ask the question directly. Let's talk Trump. Yes. Um, I, I find it outrageous what he's doing. And, uh, I find outrageous, uh, the people who support him. And I don't mean uh, the people who vote for him out of whatever, uh, desperation and where they come from. I mean the people who create a person like this to rule, uh, the most powerful nation in this world and create a situation that I cannot have another response than being outraged. Yes. So course. I understand everything you, you're saying, but it doesn't take anything away from my rage. Uh, and at the same time, uh, I hear you. Um, we have to find a different way how to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And uh, the way I understand you, there's something in, as I I guess uh, you would say in the letting go of meditation, which also is the letting go of uh, even my rage and mm -hmm. even my justified rage uh, mm -hmm. of what's going on right now at the U.S.-Mexican border with uh, yeah. the children and uh, the yes, old tragedy. It, yeah. it, 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 it is uh, really it's more right. than yeah. horrific. Uh, and I, I, I cannot blame anyone who basically does not, who, who has an emotional response to that. Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, you're working uh, with uh, developmental uh, theory, also kind of taking into account that we do have as humans different value systems mm -hmm. and that I have to honor also value systems that are not close to my own mm -hmm. as being valuable. Mm -hmm. How do I deal with it? Okay, I, I understand. I understand uh, uh, what uh, spiral dynamics, which is a theory that is very much using these different stages of uh, of, of values, and tries to to use this in social context. I understand that, but at the same time, um, some things are so extreme uh, that uh, moderation seems to be wrong. Mm -hmm. yeah. What's your well, response? Well, I think the question you're asking is I can describe why the public discourse has become so degraded, but the question is what is it that we do about it? And, you know, what, how do we address our outrage? 
how do we work with our anger or our, um, as I said before, our sense of powerlessness? Um, what does meditation have to do with our ability to work with ourselves? You know, to what extent am I obligated to act? And, you know, just to simply take a stand against certain kinds of activities. And to what extent do, do I use my position, use my skill set, use what I know about consciousness and what I know about meditation to, to find ways to create a middle way to still open up public discourse. And, um, you know, how is it that I work with people at, you know, at what we would call different levels of development or having different value systems that are actually at play. So, Again, part of what we're, we're working with right now, Tom, is I think that certainly for America to, to see the public discourse this degraded and to experience things that I haven't experienced in my lifetime, mm-hmm. um, the way in which to, to watch Donald Trump go to the G7 summit and to basically disrespect our, you know, our traditional allies, Canada and Germany and members of the EU and then to turn around and have, uh, um, you know, a, a summit with Kim Jong-un who is regarded by most of the world to be one of the, the most um, injurious dictators on the planet at this time and to kind of watch this leader get puffed up. I think, so I think the first thing is, is for people like us and your listeners who, who actually have done consciousness work and do meditate we have to have confidence in our training and we have to, we have to assume that what we've learned throughout the course of spiritual practice or our adult development work or whatever kind of inner work we've done that, it, that it's relevant in extreme times. So the first thing I would suggest is that we have confidence in our training and that, that says don't be outraged, but use your outrage to work constructively against and for that which really matters. So in the case right now with the immigrant children, I have to be outraged. I have to recognize it. I have to contribute to some of the organizations that are addressing it. I have to sign petitions. I have to write letters to my Congress people. I have to take a stand that this isn't okay. And I think the upside is that we are seeing that that's actually had an effect on Donald Trump. So that would be the first thing. Have confidence in your training. Be clear about your values and continue to act under all circumstances in a way that's harmonious with the values and with the practices that you've engaged. So that's really Mm -hmm. important for me because of my training as a mediator, I have to act politically according to what it is that I really genuinely believe, but in my own discourse, in my work, in my relationships, I still am working to create understanding between people, even though I may not agree with their outrageous positions. I Mm -hmm. still have to act as though I have faith in human beings, regardless of how they may be seeing the world. And that at some level, by opening up a conversation between people, by creating mutual understanding, by helping people see one another's perspectives, there's still more of a possibility of going forward. I'm taking a stand for that. So recently, I was in a, a personal conversation just a couple of nights ago, in which, uh, I don't know if this will be a good example for your, for people around the world who aren't from the States, but the Confederate flag, the flag that was flown mm. in the South during the civil war in the United States has become a symbol of hate speech. Mm-hmm. And so when people see the Confederate flag, particularly people on the left or of more liberal persuasion, they really see it as an act of hatred and the negation of, um, 
you know, the emancipation of slaves and, and certainly attack on people of color. And there's a Confederate flag that's flying in my, uh, one of my, where my retreat center is in Southern Utah. Mm-hmm. And one of my uh, colleagues who's a Jewish woman was tremendously offended. And at the same time, I had a, a young friend who was there who actually has been in Israel studying counterterrorism. And he basically said to her, unless they're doing something, you should allow it because you don't know if you take a certain kind of action, you don't know if that, what that's going to create. And if there's no, if it's simply a symbol and it's, there isn't any negative activity coming from it, you should leave it. And for her, that was a tremendously, um, cowardly approach. And she mm-hmm. felt that she did have an obligation. And because I was part of that conversation, I just simply insisted that they listen to each other and find the, the truth in what one another was saying. And I think taking a stand for mutual understanding is certainly one of the ways that I'm continuing to work with my practice and what I've been given in my life and to trust that even under extreme circumstances, there's still a tremendous amount of value in doing that. So that's a long-winded answer. Let, let me ask you about your work to uh, make each other understand each other. Yes. As, you, as you know, uh, uh, part of my work is also very much uh, focused on dialogue work. Yes. And, and at some point I asked myself, uh, what are the limits of dialogue? The, or, or to ask it the other way around, what is the relationship between dialogue and conflict? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to really get to the point, I asked myself the question, uh, and being German, that's very close, uh, how about a dialogue with Adolf Hitler? And we know that basically uh, there was an attempt uh, to dialogue with Adolf, Hit- Adolf Hitler in the, in the early 30s. It's called appeasement politics. And that was part of right. what uh, part of what created the Second World War because the West was not prepared, while Hitler Germany was already basically preparing for war. Yeah. And uh, when uh, Churchill realized what was going on, it was more mm-hmm. or less too late because the war machinery, the German war machinery, was already five years ahead of time. Yes, <coughs> he said. The... I remember Churchill's statement: "You can't negotiate with a tiger when your head's in its mouth." Exactly. So that is a real question. That's a real question. What are the limits of dialogue mm-hmm. uh, uh, with someone who maybe doesn't want to dialogue, but wants to basically uh, uh, have your head between his teeth? Well, well, I'd be I'd be interested to ask you, Tom, how are you thinking about it right now? I'll, I'll share some of my thoughts. But, you know, given I mean, we have Trump now. Yeah. He's not exactly an easy person to dialogue with. What, what have you been thinking about that? I, I, I can tell you what, uh, what, my, uh, what I came to in, the, uh, in, in, in my thought process and, and yeah, talking with, with other people. Basically, there are, uh, there are times where you have to uh, admit that conflict is necessary. Mm-hmm. And uh, just to stay with the example that you have to fight Hitler that you can't have a pacifist approach to Hitler. Basically, if someone like him wants to wage war, you have to stand against him and you have to wage war. Mm-hmm. But, uh, so you have to, you, you, you have to agree to conflict because, uh, the alternatives are worse. Mm-hmm. But there are different ways of conflict. That's the way I would see it. And I, I, I'm curious if you would agree with that. There is a way of conflict where 
uh, the way I fight someone, and I really mean the word, you have to fight some, uh, you have to fight Hitler. Mm -hmm. But the way and the motive to fight him is not to destroy him, mm -hmm. but to get to a point where it's possible uh, to start a dialogue. And with Hitler as a person, this was not possible. But look at the difference what uh, the Allied forces did in the First World War and the Second World War mm -hmm. when they won the war. Same war. Uh, in the First World War, basically, the peace treatment was uh, unbelievably harsh for the German side mm -hmm. and was part of the reason that started the Second World War. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the response in the Second World War was the Marshall Plan that basically allowed Europe and Germany to uh, really recover from the tragedy of the war. Mm -hmm. So there was an approach not just basically to uh, destroy the enemy, but to, to have a focus point that even when you have to fight someone, to look where is the point. There's something like understanding is again possible. And at least in the history of the two world wars, mm -hmm. the results is very obvious. And the, the conclusion for me is we, ha we have to see when we have to fight, but we have to fight with a motive to always look, not for destruction, but for understanding. I think that's a, that's a very good conclusion that you've arrived at. I, I don't know what the most current research is right now regarding this, but I do know that there was research when I was teaching mediation at the law school that uh, there was a certain um, study that actually looked at the most effective uh, forms of cooperation or competition and basically what the conclusion of that study was, and, it, and I think it was a computer simulation, I think they ran these scenarios, and that the result was that the most efficient and effective form of negotiation was to cooperate, to cooperate, to cooperate. And when one of the parties abused the agreement or took advantage or wielded power unfairly, that you hit back hard, mm -hmm. you hit back equally hard or harder, and then you go back to cooperating. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be consistent with what it is you're describing. In other words, when people start to um, take advantage or corrupt the dialogue process or the negotiation process, that you actually respond, as you put it, you fight, and then you go back to cooperating. And in your example, that would be like the Marshall Plan, where you actually allow the other side to recover. So that seems that seems smart to me. I think for some of us, it's difficult when you when you have spent as much time as I have um, in my life in practice, in meditation, listening skills, and trying to be peace about, to then shift gears and be willing to fight, sometimes people just simply aren't in shape for that. Right. And that's one of the difficulties. Like you said, you know, the German army had plenty of, t had built up for a long time before people realized they were going to have to oppose the Germans in the war and they simply weren't in shape. And I think that's true of us on a personal level as well. We're not well organized we're not particularly armed, so to speak, yeah. to, to have the fight. So that's a tricky part of the equation. Yeah. But it seems uh, that uh, both are work, works that you are involved in, the, me the meditation work and the mediation work, mm -hmm. uh, try to address that. Mm -hmm. Because I, I would say that uh, the skill that you develop as a meditator it's just to 
gain some freedom to your whatever emotional or uh, uh, being caughtness is, whatever, and you can be rightful or whatever, your own emotional response creates some distance to yourself. You need some, yeah. in, you need some inner freedom. Yes. And the meditation practice, if it doesn't do anything more, at least it creates this, some inner freedom to be not just a slave of your own emotional response. And that seems to be to be the foundation of everything in your dealing with yourself, in your dealing with your environment, but also to deal with uh, the challenges of our political world right now. Would you agree that this is a very foundational, important work that all of us, uh, in particular also people who are politically involved, uh, would benefit just tremendously because of this little thing, a slight uh, dimension of inner freedom? Yes. So the disidentification with our negative thought patterns and our emotional responses that lead us down a, a more destructive path in our communications. And I think this way, the other thing that it allows us to do, Tom, is because we uh, become very good observers of our own interior, we can also really start to watch our nervous system. And so we can start to see what the sensations of adrenaline and of cortisol and norepinephrine mm -hmm. are, and we can see when we're aroused and we're defensive. And by using the breath and becoming more present, we can actually calibrate the nervous system and return it to a state of ease because we know that when the nervous system is at ease, the thoughts that arise from there tend to be, uh, you know, somewhat less hysterical. So I think the being able to observe our emotional states and also recalibrate our nervous system through working with the breath. It's tremendously helpful. Mm -hmm. And I would agree. It would be awesome if people would learn how to do that. I'm working with a, uh, an executive right now, one of the, a corporation who literally his cutting edge, his development is to learn to feel, you know, he's not able to contact his emotions and yet he's almost the, he's one person away from being the CEO of a major corporation and he doesn't have much sense of his own interior. So it's a tremendous asset to be able to do that. And I guess the other asset that comes from your mediation work and also uh, your involvement with the mental work like spell dynamics is to be able to see a other perspective. And I think that's more difficult uh, than we usually think because usually we, we are aware of other people and, and we, 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 We think that we understand where they come from, but in fact, we still see it from our own perspective. Yeah, that's so, right. So the capacity to somehow change uh, the eyes I'm looking through and being aware, okay, I have these certain perspectives. I'm Austrian. I uh, have more liberal worldview. I'm postmodern. I, I see the world in a, in a certain way. At the same time, Uh, I know in Germany uh, there are people, they come from different class, they have a, a different education, they have a different social background. The, their whole value system is, is very, very different. And because of that, they see the world from a different angle and they literally do see a different world. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely true. Just to allow myself, not just as an intellectual exercise, but as an existential a reality to penetrate this Uh, my, in, my, in my own being allows me to see the dignity of the other person in a very different way because I deeply can disagree with him or her 
but I can realize that from his or her perspective, he maybe is even right. Well, it's one of the, what you're describing, um, this ability to take perspectives is, is one of the hallmarks of what we mean by adult development or, or, um, you know, human evolution that mm-hmm. I, I learned this when I was a mediator because I expected that everybody could take perspectives. So we come to a negotiation and we listen to each other and we come up with a, uh, a mutual agreement. And what I discovered was that actually that wasn't, I couldn't take that for granted that some people couldn't take their own perspective very well. They'd been abused or marginalized. Some people could take their own perspective, most people, but they literally couldn't listen to, to another person. Some people could never take a third person perspective. They couldn't mm-hmm. think about what a court would do or what the law would do. They could only think about what they felt their first person. And so to be able to take your own perspective, to take the perspective of another person, to accord that perspective some element of truth, even if it isn't ultimacy, that there's something legitimate and dignified. Mm-hmm. And then to be able to still hold your own point of view and create a hierarchy is a really complex task. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one of the, to get back to our original topic, one of the reasons I think that inner evolution is so important is because it actually allows us to do what you're describing. And we can, when we can do that, we have far more choices than when we can't do that. So it's really important to learn how to empathize, how to see the truth in other people's point of view and, and still hold to what you believe the highest and best value is. And you brought something in that uh, I think is an important addition to what I said, uh, because it's not only to appreciate and be able to see the other perspective, but also to appreciate a hierarchy of the capacity to hold different perspectives. Correct. Uh, because that. Uh, if our assumptions are right, and uh, if this, this is something that uh, through life experience and to maturation and inner work we can develop, uh, and we can develop something like a postmodern or even integral perspective that, that holds this multiplicity that we are talking about, uh, then this puts me in a much more responsible situation because I have to basically... Uh, uh, and this is a hierarchical perspective. I have to see that I am capable of seeing the other perspective, but I have to allow that someone who has a very traditional uh, take on life mm-hmm. is maybe not able to do so. And without uh, uh, creating any arrogance out of that, mm-hmm. that puts a lot of uh, of responsibility on my side to allow someone who just basically is uh, coming from a perspective that has his or her ethnicity, his or her religious perspective as the absolute frame point, uh, framework that they are holding to find ways to communicate because I'm better equipped to do that. So my responsibility is to do what I can to create mutual understanding here. Yeah, sometimes I sometimes say to my students, you know, the good, the good news is that you can grow, you can evolve and you can develop your skills. The bad news is when you do that, then you have more responsibility. It means that if you have more capacity, you also have to use it. And sometimes that can be challenging. And I think that what you're saying, one way to maybe for your listeners to think about it is that, you know, when we're working with, uh, let's say a young child, for instance, because we have more life experience, and um, 
we're a more mature adult, we have the obligation to help, but it doesn't mean that you're somehow better. And I think that's a distinction that really has to be made because we do tend to conflate development with somehow for better. And that's not the point. So let us come back to the, uh, the beginning of our conversation. Okay, great. And uh, let us come back to uh, the title of this conversation, Inner Evolution for Social Revolution. This is a title that also you chose and you uh, seem to um, uh, be fond of. How, how can we use what we are, have been talking right now in order to be useful for the social change that we need right now? We, we, we talked about parts of it, what's happening in Europe, what's happening in the U.S., how we need it um, not just to develop as, uh, as individuals, but to be available for a world who needs mature responses. Mm-hmm. How um, can we do that? Yeah, so in an evolution, social revolution, I'll give credit to uh, my colleagues at 10 Directions, an mm-hmm. integral facilitator, because they actually created that, that uh, motto. Um, I think that there are a couple of things that we can do to really, you know, participate in this possibility. And the first one I think is, as I said before, any sort of practices that we're engaged in that support our wakefulness, that also support our growing up, evolving emotionally, um, learning how to hold multiple perspectives, learning how to listen and empathize with those who are different than we are and still take a stand. Mm -hmm. So those practices are tremendously important. I think a second thing is to surround yourself with people and with colleagues that that see the world in the way that you do and that you can derive support from. So my conversation with you right now is one of the ways that, you know, you're helping my thinking, you're posing questions to me and also asking me to inquire into certain ways that I think and feel that are helping me to clarify and that will strengthen my skill set. And I think it's also important to interact with people who are not like us Precisely. So we we can use our skills because there's a danger right now in just simply surrounding ourselves with people who who think like we do. And then we become somewhat ineffective. So it's important to to interact with people who are different so we can see what really works. And then finally, in my mind, I think it's important to have a kind of um, set of of mentors, both both current mentors and also historical people who are historical that you can look to when you're down or when you're out or when you're looking for um, some strategy or some way to deal with an issue. So for instance, in, in my kind of retinue of, of mentors, I, I study Abraham Lincoln and I think about, you know, what it was he faced when the, when the civil war was happening, what his values were, how he enacted those values and as well as other spiritual teachers and other political leaders. So so if we practice and we surround ourselves with people that we can be supported by to grow and to be challenged, and then we also really have a very solid sense of who the people are, both historical and currently, mm-hmm. that we can learn from, that we can share a value set with, and that regardless, again, of the circumstances, that we can trust ourselves to enact the highest principles and the principles of love and of understanding. I mean, those are age-old values. and because we're stressed or under duress, we can't forget where home base is. When you're saying uh, to act out of our highest values, mm-hmm. um, in circumstances like the, like the circumstances that, are, that we experience right now, 
where uh, and I really appreciate uh, the way how you describe how we can create uh, circumstances for ourselves to grow. All what what you're just describing are just ways to put us in situations where we can grow. Yeah. How can we use this growth uh, to respond? Uh, we were talking about the degradation of social discourse. We were talking about uh, the outrageous reality of the U.S. government right now. Uh, we haven't uh, talked about, but just to bring it in, the immigration crisis in Europe. It uh, uh, creates a tremendous uh, challenge for uh, uh, the people uh, living in, in, in Europe being being scared, but also facing that the immigration crisis has to do with the crisis that uh, we are not co completely irresponsible for what's going on in Africa. It's all globally interconnected and we have to see uh, the interconnection of all of that and try to find ways that uh, uh, there's a solution that really holds the integral perspective on this. Uh, what are ways to respond here? Well, are there particular guidelines that you find that are helpful in order to be here and not just have be, being nice and loving each other, but also not uh, falling in this kind of leftist hatred that uh, in itself is just part of the same destruction uh, that, that we are facing? What, are there guidelines that you, that you see or that, uh, that you have thought about that would help to address the world uh, that uh, we're living in in this quite uh, 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 dramatic times. Yeah, I think our, I think our social networks are extremely important right now because they're, it's so easy to get scared. And when we're scared, we mm -hmm. generally do things that to ensure our own survival, but we forget that our survival is interdependent, as you were saying. And I liked the point that you made about when you were talking about, sometimes you have to accept that conflict is necessary and what it's necessary to be really, really clear about your intention and about your motive, because that motive is going to determine to some degree the outcome. So even if you take a strong stand, when you still hold the well-being of others, you know, you may put a limit on immigration or you may decide that you need more, you know, I'm not, I'm not terribly familiar with how I, I'm familiar with the, uh, the politics in Europe right now regarding the refugee crisis, but I don't know for sure at, you know, the, the actual, um, limits and forms and, and how that's being handled. But it may be that, you know, we have to be inclusive and we also have to have limits and both those have to be real. But our, our, our motive is really going to make a huge difference in terms of how we, how we do that. And then finally, I think that something that Chogim Trunka said one time has a lot of meaning for me and I think it can be true individually and also collectively is he said be yourself because reality the world will give you feedback and mm -hmm. so whether it's in a conversation that I'm having with someone whose politics I don't agree with and I start really paying attention to the way I'm having that discourse and what is the impact on that other person and how are they responding to me and how can I shift in such a way to create more of the response that I'm wanting and I think that's also true on a collective level. One of the things I think we can see about President Trump's leadership is that the feedback that's coming back is really quite negative. I mean, there are little moments where he has, you know, some 
you know, photo opportunity, or it looks like he comes out on top. But if you really pay attention, he's getting a tremendous amount of negative feedback, both locally and nationally and internationally to a lot of what he's doing right now. And he's coming from a very narcissistic, power-based, self-centered place in which wielding power in a very authoritarian way, he thinks is going to have an outcome. But these are very short-term gains. So this idea of really staying awake to and responsive to the kind of feedback that gets created. What is it that we're doing that actually has impact that's effective? Because we do tend to have habits and those habits don't always work. So how can we stay open to new ways of being that bring the feedback that we're really looking for? So that's one thing I would really invite your listeners and, and myself to think about is what actually is the feedback from these things that I do? Is it positive? Is it, is it, creating the outcome that I intend. Mm. At the end, we are also getting to the end of our conversation here. Um, in the end, uh, you have a website. Uh, the website is called uh, 10directions.com. I guess this is uh, the main resource when people want to find out more uh, from your work. Yes, uh, I would say for my facilitator and mediator work, 10directions.com, and you can go to the integral facilitator tab and then uh two arrows.com is the zen center that's the zen mm -hmm. center where i teach so if people are interested in meditation work that would be the two arrows zen.org would be the website there so thank you very much thank you very much also for the perspectives that you're bringing in how uh, as you framed in the beginning uh, meditation and mediation and also what mediation also includes on an integral perspective on reality, how these are tools, tools to, to respond and how we have to apply them in order to be also capable of responding because I think uh, the world also needs us, uh, as you said, uh, to evolve because if we are not able to, uh, to really grow in this situation, uh, we won't be the ones who really have a positive contribution of that. So, Thank you very much for your work. Yeah, thank you, Tom. Thank you very much. Thanks for your, uh, just your insight and your devotion. I really appreciate it. Good evening. Uh, good morning, wherever you are. Uh, all the best from Frankfurt. <laughs>